So let's open our Bibles, please, to Ezra chapter 9 and chapter 10. Our title, A Difficult Dilemma for Him, for Them, and for Us. A Difficult Dilemma for Him, Ezra, for Them, the people of Israel, and for Us. So please access or open your Bibles, and we'll start in chapter 9 in a moment. While you're doing that, let me ask you a, uh, a question. I'd imagine that many folks here, most of us, um, would be familiar with um, the Dr. Seuss book. Corey, how do I go from ISIS to Dr. Seuss? Okay. Um, with the Dr. Seuss book, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Everybody know that one? Everybody heard of that one? Okay. How about some of the other books that he wrote? Um, Green Eggs and Ham, Cat in the Hat, our family favorite, and one of the ways our children learned their ABCs was Dr. Seuss's ABC. Uh, I tried to get that right. I, I checked it out with Corey. I said, hey, I think I remember it. And she says, no, you missed a word. So let's see how you do. Uh, if you use that. Big A, little a, what begins with A? That's impressive. All right. <laughs> Repetition for Anglos is critical to memorization and to learning. Some repetition can be fun and bring about fond smiles, like some of you had as you remembered that from your childhood or from your kids. Big A, little A, what begins with A? My kids are going to smile every time mom says that to them. But some repetition can bring back memories of shame and of sadness. And today's text is filled with the latter. It's a text about shame and sadness. It's, It's a text about hope, but it's a difficult text. Part of the dilemma in the text is going to be for us. But before we dive in, we're going to need to review, like we did last week, we got some review to do, two terrible words, and they both begin with A. They're fairly familiar words, but they're typically very difficult to get our arms around. Here's the first word, (laughs) big A. What begins with A? Abomination. Abomination. What is that word? Well, it's, it's the English word in our English Bibles. It's a word that we use to translate four or five different Hebrew words. Four or five different Hebrew words. Hello, Ruth and Ruben. Everybody just look. So go ahead. We can just, hey! Woohoo! Back to the text. Four or five Hebrew words. We typically understand abomination to mean something loathsome. Something hateful. Hateful as in, we should hate it. It's hateful to us. It's sinful. It's wicked. It's vile. In our English Bibles, abomination, though, has a range of meaning. Depending on its context, one word doesn't fit every context exactly. Now, typically, it refers to serious Moral offenses, serious moral offenses, hence the way we traditionally think of it. It's serious moral offenses, so of course it's it's loathsome, we hate it, it's sinful, it's something wicked and vile, but it can also refer to something that's forbidden or unclean. Now in today's text, we're going to find, based on what translation you're using, the word abomination or detestable things, or to do abominations, it's more of a verb what we're talking about, they're doing things. And that means imitating, for them, in that text, it meant imitating pagan cultures specifically in one way today. In promiscuous, immoral, and licentious marriages. Marriages that would and did in Israel's history and right then in the text were introducing idolatrous practices to Israel. Marriages that were forbidden by the law of Moses. Forbidden to enter into by the law of Moses, which leads to our second word, big A, little a, what begins with a little a? Annulment, annulment. An annulment is one of two typical ways to legally end a marriage. Now, the one we're most familiar with is the word divorce, and and actually that word does not occur in this text we're reading. Neither does the word annulment, but it's more of that concept why I'm bringing it up. Um, Divorce ends, um, divorce ends a legally, a legal marriage. Divorce ends a legal marriage. That's the one we're most familiar with. You have a valid marriage, how do you end it? With divorce. An annulment, however, cancels out an invalid message. 
uh, marriage. Whew. Divorce leads, leaves, cancels, shuts down, goes away from a valid marriage. That's how you end it. An annulment ends or cancels out an invalid marriage, making it as though it has never existed. Null and void, annulment, because it was never a valid marriage to begin with. Traditional examples of invalid or illegal unions would include bigamy. It's not a valid marriage. You can have it annulled because you weren't married in the first place. You went through a ceremony. But it wasn't a marriage because they were already married. What Corey was referencing to today, marriage is a forced consent. That's not a marriage. You were forced into it. And most cultures, most societies historically have recognized that as we can declare it null and void. It never was because it never was legal. It was a ceremony. It was an event. It was slavery. But it wasn't a marriage. Marriage is under the influence of extreme alcohol or drugs to the extent that you're mentally incapacitated and you have no memory. Unions and ceremonies that have in different cultures, and of course it's changing, um, in different places, but historically have been prohibited by the law of the land, such as same-sex marriage, incest, polygamy, group marriages. Actually, there are some cultures and, and places that you're married to everybody all at the same time whether you're a boy or a girl or a man or a woman. That's a minority, but that's odd. And then underage unions. Those marriages, those ceremonies are annulled. They're declared null and void because they're not marriages. So annulment. So then a big A, abomination. This is critical. We're gonna, this will make sense when we get in the text. A big A, abomination, can and should result in a little a, annulment. An abomination should result in an annulment. Got it? Let's pray. Lord, this is a difficult text. It's not one of the happy texts. And yet, it's got so much hope. Father, I pray you'd help me. I pray you'd help us. Um, This text goes against our Western sensibilities. And Lord, help me to preach and help all of us, starting with me, to submit ourselves under your word. It's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, and it's a command. You're God, we're not. And we approach you on your terms, always, solely, and exclusively. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Boy, just can't wait to get into it, can you? All right. Now, you're going to need your Bible in your hand. I'm going to teach differently than I normally do. This is such a a pregnant text that you're going to need to have a Bible in your hand because it's not going to be the normal, let's do this and talk for a long time. You're going to be doing the bobblehead the whole time. So if you don't have a Bible, there's one over there, uh, or just look on somebody right beside you. But you're going to get lost unless you have access to God's Word today. So let me give you the heads up there. Now, our group of exiles last week, remember, they arrived in Jerusalem in what would have been August of 458 B.C. They've offered the sacrifices. They've given an account to the gold and silver. They've done all that stuff. That was chapter 8. Now we're in chapter 9, and Ezra, it would seem, has been doing what the king has sent him to do. Remember back in chapter 7, he was to appoint magistrates, he was to appoint judges, and what were they to do? They were to teach the people the law of Moses. Those folks that were already living in Jerusalem in its surrounding areas, some of them had been living there 50 plus years. They were to teach the Bible. And in our final two chapters today, 9 and 10, we've got a lot to cover, We find ourselves now in December. Ezra got there. We left Ezra in August. Now it's December. It's been four months, and Ezra's been doing his job. He's the official of the Persian government. He's also a priest of God. And he's doing his job, and he's teaching the exiles and his other officials that he's brought with them, those other priests and the Levites that we talked about last year. They've had four months of teaching the Mosaic Law to the exiles. 
And the teaching of God's word has revealed some serious sin in the local population. Serious sin. And they're going to discover, and they did discover, they're facing some very difficult dilemmas. So, our main points. Number one, for him, for Ezra, chapter 9. It's pretty simple today, isn't it? A difficult dilemma for them. That's all of chapter 10. And then what do we do today? And what, what questions does that raise for us? So, let's jump right into the Bible. For him, chapter 9. Here we go. I'm reading out of the ESV. Yours might be slightly different from time to time. After these things had been done, the officials approached me. You notice it's changed tenses now. Ezra is now recording. It's being recorded more in a different person. And the me is Ezra. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. Verse 2. For they had taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. These are the officials talking to him. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials, this is the officials telling Ezra that they and the chief men, their leaders, have been the foremost sinners. God's word has come. God's mercy. I mean, Ezra didn't bring this to them. Four months of Bible teaching and the Holy Spirit now graciously because it is God's grace to reveal our sin. It doesn't feel like it. Discipline is not pleasant. Hebrews is clear. But it's God's grace to reveal our sin through His Word. And God graciously, by His Spirit, moves on the guilty. And the very ones who are the foremost offenders receive mercy and grace and they come to Ezra. Everybody's involved, priests, Levites, officials, leaders, the people. What does it mean when it says the holy race? Some of your texts say the holy seed. It's the holy nation that God had chosen back in Exodus to be holy because he is holy. And holiness looks like representing God's character and reflecting God's love. And the problem is, The holy nation has just discovered that they're not holy. They've got a dilemma. Now, some may ask, and it's a legit question, is this really, though, just a form of racism? Absolutely not. We've got to remember, Moses married a Midianite. Now, that's not an Israelite. Ruth married Boaz. Well, Boaz was an Israelite. Ruth was one of the nations mentioned in this, this verse we just read. She was from Moab. You're not supposed to marry that. But guess what? Both of these men stayed true to God because their wives had converted. See, the wives here, the problem is not racism. The problem is religion. The wives had not converted. Remember back in chapter 6, It was clear that anybody who was there was welcome to convert and follow the law and convert to Yahweh, to Jehovah, and follow Him. That's never been the issue. Their issue was they abandoned, they refused to abandon the worship of other gods. Worship practices, detestable practices, abominations that God, God said, were wicked. See, it was about holiness. It was about worship. It was about obedience, not about race. Intermarriage had been strictly prohibited. One of the things they'd heard is these Levites and these priests are, are teaching them the law. I mean, just one example. Deuteronomy 7, I'll just read it to you. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods, then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Can you imagine hearing that and knowing that you're a leader, you're an official, and the word when they came to, to, to Ezra and said, Ezra, we're the worst, the word they used, which is translated faithlessness in your English Bible, in Hebrew it means abandoning the faith. 
We've broken God's covenant. We've abandoned the faith. Ezra, we got a dilemma. Look at verse 3. As soon as I heard this, now here's Ezra's dilemma. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and my beard, and I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, Oh my God! Not the way we say it. This ain't OMG. I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has, has mounted up to the heavens for the, from the days of our fathers to this day. Because he's talking about Deuteronomy now. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown to us by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Ezra, Ezra expresses his sadness and sorrow with the traditional ways and acts of mourning coupled with fasting. We saw that last week. And others join him. They're trembling. Why are they trembling? (laughs) Because, remember, they're aware of God's word. And what they're nervous about is God's going to keep his word. And that means they're dead. They're dead. They're dead. God's made a promise. And if he keeps his word right now, and they get justice, oh God, perform your word. Ezra minimizes nothing. He confesses his own sin and the sins of his people. But he's aware that God's hand is for good for those who seek him. Remember last week? He moves from fully focusing on their faithlessness to focusing on the faithfulness and the covenant mercy of God. See, God has shown them favor with kings. God has protected them on many occasions. Even though they're not fully free, they have been shown incredible favor. They're not in Babylon. Folks who decided not to return, just as an aside in that text, folks who decided not to return are not referred to as the remnant. The folks still living in Babylon, they're not the remnant. Only the ones in Judah and Jerusalem. They, they messed up. They stayed. Those who've been given a secure hold, uh, in, 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 literally it's called a tent peg. They've, they've mashed in a tent peg. They've been given fresh courage, shining eyes. God has been merciful to them by allowing them to return. And God has been merciful to them by revealing to them their sin through his word. That's mercy. Look at verse 10. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? You led us here to Jerusalem. What shall we say? For we've forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you're entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not Give your daughters to their sons. Neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace. Don't try to be at peace with them. Don't make war, but don't, don't, don't collaborate. Don't capitulate. And don't get bought off. That's what was occurring in the first chapters. Don't seek their prosperity. Don't do that. 
that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave for it an inheritance to your children forever. Verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, O God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, it goes on to say, and have given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break, verse 14, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us? You consumed us so that there should be, until you consume us, so there will be no remnant nor any to escape. Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we're left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Ezra, that's ours we're talking. Ezra sugarcoats nothing. They're guilty. They deserve to be punished. God, hello, God does not, this is so anti-American, God does not owe them mercy. It ceases to be mercy if it's owed. It's called payment. God does not owe them or me mercy. And Ezra's aware of that, and Ezra's got a dilemma. But he's also aware that God's hand is for good for those who seek him. And in this case, here's what seeking is going to look like. It begins with confession and repentance. Now, what about the New Testament? Has it changed? Absolutely not. 1 John 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And his word is not in us. See, we seek God on his terms, not ours. That's tough, isn't it? It's almost like he's Lord. The dilemma for them, chapter 10. While Ezra prayed and made confession, so here's Ezra, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, the temple, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And this guy stands up and addresses Ezra. Now it starts to change. We have broken faith with our God, verse 2, and have married foreign women. Hear him confess in sin? From the peoples of the land. But even, oh, this is such good news. But even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. Look what, look what seeking God looks like. Confession and repentance filled with hope. In spite of all, Lord, what a mess we're in. You should kill us right now. This is what you did to our forefathers. We had the audacity to come back and do this again? We should be nuked. Right. We're guilty as charged. It's piled up above heaven. Right. You're merciful to those who seek you. Your hands to good for them. Seeking looks like confess and repent and throw myself on, not presume on, but throw myself on your mercy. See, they gather and are weeping because they understand the dilemma they're facing. So someone stands up. And as Ezra has represented the people before God in confession, now a particular Israelite, probably a leader, stands up and represents the people in confession and repentance. We won't have time to read it all today, but he says they've broken the covenant by engaging in illegal and illicit relationships. The word translated, it's interesting here, the word translated, typically translated marriage, the one where you see marriage in your Bible, further in that text, that's not the normal Hebrew word. It could be better translated, not marriage, but we have given a home. And where you read put away or send away, that word is not the normal word in Hebrew for divorce. That's why I said annulment. It means to bring out, to send out, to excommunicate. See, and notice he refers there to the... Look at... Look at um, 3. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives 
and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment. We don't know for sure, but it seems like there may have been a plan to return them back to their people. Remember, it's different than divorce or sending someone back today. When you got married, your parents, if you're a gal, your parents sent with you a dowry, and that dowry was saved. And if your husband ever sent you away, he sent you back to your parents, and he sent you back with the cash. It was like Social Security. It was. And, and you didn't, people look at dowries now and go, that's just so terrible. Oh, no, no. For the wife back then, that was awesome. She had a fallback plan. Her who had many cultures had no rights. There was provided a fallback plan. And Ezra knew that. He was righteous before the Lord. He wasn't just going to cast him out and kill him. Send him back to mom and dad and send him back with all our money. Do the right thing. You who entered into a relationship you never should have to begin with. But do the right thing. It's going to cost you too, pal. Do the right thing. So they must make a covenant to obey God, knowing there's still hope for them in spite of their sin. Look at verse 5. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath. Put your money where your mouth is, boys, and they that they would do as it's been said. So they took the oath, all of Israel, all the men. Then Ezra withdrew from them before the house of God. He goes to some friends' houses. He spends the night. He doesn't eat bread. He doesn't drink water an entire evening. For he's still mourning over the breaking covenant, faithlessness, verse 6, of the exiles. And a proclamation, verse 7, was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Huh? Right, remember, Ezra had civil authority. He had the full authority of the king. He had it behind him. He could make that proclamation. But he doesn't. They do. He takes them up on their word and says, good, you're repenting? Let's require an oath. He's still mourning. He's not self-righteous. He's fasting. And this proclamation is read throughout all of Jerusalem and in those small towns around Jerusalem and Judea. They're all easily within three days. It's not like it's the Israel we think of. It's just a little, it's, it's Cooper City and Florida City. If they were side by side, that's the population. Since the literal survival of the people is at stake, all the men must appear three days in Jerusalem now. By the way, if you fail to appear, you'll be cut off from the people of God. This little marriage thing is kind of serious because they know God could keep his word right now and kill them all. What does that mean? It means you're no longer a citizen under protection of Ezra or the king. It means you're no longer to allowed to participate in the temple sacrifices so your sins don't get atoned for. Guess where you go when you die? Your property will be confiscated and there will be no help for you from the community in times of trouble. This is excommunication on steroids. They're serious. Because if you would not respond to God's commands, you would not be counted among God's people. glad that doesn't apply to us as Christians. Welcome to Matthew 18. Verse 9. Then the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days, and it was the night month on the twelfth day of the month, and all the people, all the men, sat in an open square before the house of God. They're in right in front of the temple. They're trembling because of this matter, because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up, verse 10, and said to them, You've broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make a confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, our version of Amen. It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it's a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or two. We have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at an appointed time. With them, the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter 
is turned away from us. So now it's December, and everybody shows up, and it's cold, and it's really raining hard. And they have a life-threatening dilemma. That's their dilemma. They're trembling. Due to the cold and rain, absolutely. Due to the prospect of choosing who they're going to love more, a human or God. And they're trembling because they know that they could die. Ezra is addressing the men. They've broken covenant by disobeying God's word. They put all of Israel at risk. A minority has put the majority, because you'll find out when, they see, when you see how many people, at risk. They need to obey God. And again, using an English word, abomination must result in annulment. It's an illegal marriage. It doesn't count. And all but four men agree and repent. That's crazy, isn't it? And it lists their names. How would you like that to have you? Hey, here's the only, you're mentioned in the Bible. The others ask for adequate time to sort it all out with the help of local officials and leaders who will conduct, and this is what's so cool, Ezra says, absolutely, we want to conduct a full and fair investigation into who truly, not hearsay, not here in the rain, not a snap decision, we got time, God will be patient, he knows we're trying, he knows we're serious, he knows we've repented, so we want to have a full and fair, legit investigation to who truly has an illicit relationship And who doesn't? There's mercy all over the place here. Look at verse 16. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of the father's houses, according to their father's house, each of them designated by name. It's out in public. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. Look at verse 18. Now, there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Verse 19, they pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram that they had to sacrifice from the flock of their guilt. 44, all these, that list you just skipped over, all these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. It took them about three months to work through a little over a hundred cases. Individual, one-on-one, mano-a-mano investigation. The men were listed by name. Oh, there's, there's a guy there that's from the high priestly family. There's a bunch of priests. There's Levites. There's singers. And then there's everybody else. It was a problem that went through the whole community, top to bottom. Those who really, really, really should have known better and those who were just ignorant farmers but still should have known. And here's what's cool. God moved on all of them, equal mercy to every man. He's not a respecter of persons. He says, I'll send my spirit to you. Will you repent? Will you respond? And if you do, my hand's for good. Come on. My hand's for good. You deserve death right now. Guess what? I'll give you life. But you've got to do it on my terms. To us, it may seem like a small amount, 100 people out of all of them, but we're wrong. (laughs) All the unrepentant people must be removed from the community. God, right, that's the point, it's God. We're not told how many wives converted. There may have been a greater number. And as they did the one-on-one, conversions were occurring. And that was okay, and that's a good thing. We don't know how many were sent back to their families. No, the book abruptly ends, highlighting a specific consequence. Now, this book in the ancient canon was, it was Ezra and Nehemiah side by side. So you kind of flip the page or basically went down the scroll, and then you, oh, here's Nehemiah. But Ezra ends the book abruptly, and he highlights a specific item. It's so sad. It's a consequence of sin. Sin, forgiven sin, repented of sin. That's why you don't want to sin. It has consequences that follow you. It just does. I about trashed my marriage the first three years of our, well, well, a couple of years into our marriage, but the first year, three years of my daughter, my oldest daughter, our oldest daughter's life, I don't remember. 
I was a cop in Orlando. I know everything I did in a squad car. I excelled on my job. You know what? I about ditched our marriage. I walked away from God. You know, today, Jessica Britt, our oldest daughter, she doesn't know any of that. It was zero to three. And that's been forgiven. And we're best buds. And that didn't affect us because God was merciful to me and I repented. You know what? I'll never get this three years back, not even in heaven. This won't. Don't waste your life with sin. Don't just say, I'll get forgiven. It'll be cool. (laughs) Don't. See, the book abruptly ends. Dad had an illicit union. And mom makes a self-conscious choice to refuse to convert. Dad should have never entered into an illicit marriage. And mom now chooses idolatry over dad. And more importantly, an idol over God. Mom's going to hell. Sin has consequences. Abomination results in annulment. And that's God's perfect will and mercy. They had a choice. They could have converted right there in front of the priests and the elders. This wasn't just a, hey, knock it off. This is every chance, third chance, fourth chance. So that's their dilemma. What's ours? I told you this was a tough text. Here's, Here's some questions that would jump out if I was sitting there or I'm standing here and they still jump out for me. Just three. And some of these may not even apply to you. What do I do if my spouse is an unbeliever? Right now, you. And you're, you're a Christian, they're not. You've repented of your sins, you're a follower of Christ. You did something dumb early on. As a Christian, you married a non-Christian, where you both were pagans, and now one of you saved. Now what do I do? Does this text tell me, if I really follow Ezra now, does, does an abomination result in annulment? Absolutely not. That's not what this text is about. This was a text to a particular people in a certain time in a theocratic Israel following the Old Covenant. And they were still under the Old Covenant and Christ has come and that covenant's gone. There are lessons to learn, but that's not the purpose of Ezra. So you'll divorce your, un, your, un, your pagan spouse, your unbelieving husband or wife. As a matter of fact, the New Testament clearly addresses that question. Not only is it left for us to figure out, it specifically addresses it in two places. We won't read them, but you can write them down if you want, or you can listen to it later. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. Paul says, no, you don't need to. You don't need to. Absolutely not. In 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, no, you don't need to. Absolutely not. So what if my spouse is an unbeliever? Does this a text apply? Nope. Not for that reason. Nope, not at all. Ezra doesn't transfer. How about this one? Should I marry an unbeliever? That one gets a little more tricky. Should I marry someone who's practicing, is a practicing Muslim? Or how about just a casual pagan that's not practicing nothing? What do I do? Well, we have a Bible, don't we? 2 Corinthians 6.14 Second, now the parents are taking notes now. Second Corinthians 6.14 addresses the principle of being allied. Now, this isn't just about dating. It's a general principle about being allied or identified wrongly with unbelievers. He actually uses, Paul uses a term from agriculture of being hitched up in a double harness. Most people know, don't, don't be unequally yoked. We may not have a clue what that means, but that's two oxen. And you're in the same harness. And where one takes one, the other one will go. The speed one goes, the stop one does. The direction one goes. It speaks to being careful. Be careful who you're hooked up with. It's actually the word hitch where we get in English for a long time ago, hitched up. You know what? It really makes sense in this text because it has another meaning. Don't breed. Don't intermix breeds. Not racism. It's talking about something else. 
Don't do that. Don't get involved that way. One person's conduct strongly influences or controls the other. Our text basically says, don't marry people who don't worship me. That's what God says. That's a legit thing of Ezra. Don't marry people who don't worship me. So a Christian, I like what this one author put it, a Christian should, quote, not freely choose to step into a life of torn allegiances allegiances by pledging to love someone you know. Now here's, here's where truth hurts. Marrying someone you know, according to the Bible, hates the one you love. Marrying someone who hates the one you love, Christ. Okay, let's move on to the third question. What is the largest threat faced by Ezra in the book of Ezra? What was their largest threat? Kings, enemies, bandits, culture? I mean, the culture wars? Is that the largest threat? You know, it's funny. The the exiles survived every external threat. You know what their greatest threat? It wasn't from outside. It wasn't from others. This was their greatest threat. Their own sin and rebellion. They were never in fear of extermination. God protected them all the time. You know, the only time they were in fear of extermination extermination was because of their rebellion and their sin. It nearly cost all of them their lives, and it probably did cost some of them eternity in hell. This is the problem. Not here. As we were talking about that verse in Corinthians, here's how Paul trots it out. When he talks about being yoked, next verse. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So they've, just, they've just built the temple. What agreement has that temple? And all of us standing there in front of the new temple would go, well, duh, nothing. Listen to Paul's statement. For we're the temple of the living God. For God has said, I make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 2 Corinthians six sixteen. See, we've been shown covenant mercy by our Heavenly Father. We're, <laughs> we've been shown covenant mercy by our Heavenly Father. We're in union with Christ, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. If you're a Christian, that describes you right now. Right now. So we're called to reflect Him and to represent Him. We're called, okay, now think of Ezra, and think of what those Levites do, and now think of the Great Commission. We're called to teach and to obey all that he has commanded us. And you know, sometimes when you're doing your job in the Great Commission for yourself or your friends or your family, you're going to boink on sin. And what are we called to be? I mean, what do we do if we're called to teach everyone to obey everything Jesus has commanded? There, there's a one-word synopsis of that. And by the way, yes, we could say it's discipleship. But no, that's not what I'm, my point here in Ezra. It's called holiness. How are we doing? You know, if we had that little game that they made famous on TV, you could flip something on your head and, you know, you guess. What if you had that right now or last night or yesterday or the day before or six weeks ago? And you just walked around with that on your head. And everybody saw everything you thought. Hi, that looks like a nice dress. My, you're fat. I mean, you know, they saw everything. We're called to holiness. And you know, we're also called to love God. It seems like for, for us, these dilemmas, oh, to send my wife away, to send my children away, to, to actually ditch my family for Jesus... That doesn't even remotely apply to me. That's the old covenant. That's when you had rings and stuff on your thing and stuff on your arms and you rocked and prayed to the... That's all gone. Well, yes, as a means of righteousness. No, as a means of radical commitment to holiness and to Christ and Christ alone. My love for Christ, my, my love for Corey, my love for my mom and dad, my love for our kids, my love for you, my love for any and everything is supposed to look like hatred in contrast to my love for Christ. Let 
Luke 14. If anyone comes to me, it's Jesus, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, here's the kicker, and yes, even his own life. Because see, (laughs) I tell Corey all the time, I'm like, oh honey, I love you so much. You are number three in my life. It's true. And Jesus is number two. And sadly, I am number one. If anyone comes to me and does not, in comparison to his love for me, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Right now, it's not real popular to be a hater. You hater. Patriot hater. No, this is, this is popular hatred. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Band, you can come on. Let's all be still for just a second. Your car will wait. Your Bible will wait to be zipped. Let's just focus. Not being mean, just want us all to focus. Lord, who do we love that we're supposed to hate? Lord, what do we love that we're supposed to hate? An abomination is something that we're supposed to hate. And if we don't, it's abomination. Lord, what do I love that's forbidden, illicit? Lord, Who do I love more than I love you, especially myself? Lord, you've shown us covenant mercy. You died on a cross. There's a new covenant in your blood. And one Sunday a month, we celebrate that with communion, your supper. Lord, probe our hearts today as we've read two difficult chapters. How are we doing with holiness? Lord, it's, it's your grace to us to point out sin. How are we doing with holiness? And how are we doing with hating the things you hate? And how are we doing with not loving ourselves, but taking up our cross and dying to ourselves and following you? Because Lord, we, we, can we be like Ezra and like that dude who stood up Lord, your word can prick our heart and let us now confess to you and repent to you and take action for you. Lord, let us tremble at your word and let us be holy. Now, Lord, your word, your your law to them and your law and commandments to us, show us what we can't do. (laughs) I can't do this! And that's the point. Holy Spirit, move on our heart. Show us covenant mercy. Oh, Lord, move in our lives. Change our motives and our attitudes and our heart by your word through other people. Lord, just directly change us, Lord, from the inside out. Romans 12, transform us by the renewing of our minds. Lord, guilty is charged. Look what your word does. Why am I not more aware of your word? It is on autopilot affecting them. They just got to learn it, and it changes them, and they come and repent. Because you, Holy Spirit, work by the Word. Do that in us. Do that in me. Lord, I want to be more like Jesus. Lord, I need grace to repent. I need grace to see it. And then I need grace to repent. I need grace to do it. And Lord, that's how it's all designed. That way, all boasting goes to you. The crazy thing is, after I'm dead, you'll reward me for this little teeny bit I did when all the boasting and everything came from you.
when I did cooperate, you're going to reward me for it. And that's crazy. And Lord, all the things I've done, you'll forgive. You've already forgiven. And Lord, if I drop dead right now, I'll be in front of you and all my sins will have been washed away. The Calvary's tree. Because I repented and I believed then. So I'll never be more justified then than I am right now. Lord, I want to grow in sanctification. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, these things that just stay in our lives. Help us, Lord. Help us to help each other. To do the Great Commission more than evangelism. Help us to make disciples who obey what you've commanded and feel the good and the pleasure and the power that you'll pour forth in us in covenant grace. Lord, Ezra applies to us. we got a dilemma, but it's solved at Calvary's tree. Now, Lord, help us to live that life we're about to sing about. And Lord, this song is perfect because it starts out that all we got's you. It's all we need. And Lord, after singing of all the things you've done for us, while we were yet sinners, you loved us. Now, proclaiming all we have is you. Then we move to say, oh, by the way, help us to be different. And help us to live a life that everybody knows is empowered by you. Because we want all boasting and all glory. We want to reflect you. We want to represent you. Lord, help us, we pray. Lord, as we sing, let us let us confess our sin and, and know that in spite of this, whatever that is you're bringing to our heart, you died for our sins. If you loved us while we were yet sinners, how much more right now as we're confessing? Look at the Israelites in front of Ezra. The very priests who should have known better are coming up and saying, we're the worst of all. But in spite of this, God's moving on our heart to seek you, Lord, so we'll do it in faith. We'll repent cast ourselves on your mercy and then live a life of discipleship following and love for you because you loved us first if we confess our sins you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness so we can approach you clean hands and pure hearts we can ascend that holy hill to our God because we're in Christ right now help us we pray Jesus' name.